very pleased to be joined by Jonathan Greenblatt. He is the chief executive officer of one of America's most important institutions, the 109-year-old Anti-Defamation League, the ADL. Uh, Jonathan has a big job. Thrilled to have him. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. Um, before we get into contemporary events, today is a monumental day in history. It is May 8th. 78 years have passed since General Eisenhower cabled from his headquarters that the mission of the Allied Expeditionary Forces had been achieved. The thousand-year Nazi Reich was smashed into oblivion, and the Germans unconditionally surrendered. Um, but anti-Semitism didn't end in 1945, did it? No, no, no. I mean... You know, Steve, anti-Semitism has been called the oldest hatred, and it has persisted, you know, across millennia, different continents, different cultures, and it, it has been the kind of core in many ways of different, um, you know, dictators who scapegoated the Jews for their own megalomaniacal purposes. So it was Hitler in the 20th century, it was the czars, you know, in the 19th century, it was the, you know, the, the Martin Luther in the 18th century, it was the church in an earlier time and so on and so forth. Um, today, unfortunately, the scourge continues and it's metastasized and mutated. But the essence, the essence, this kind of conspiracy theory that posits that Jews are at the center of society's ills, your personal problems, that core remains, unfortunately, as uh, poisonous today as it was, you know, for the past 2,000 years. Should also mention an important anniversary today, uh, a birthday, Harry Truman, born on May 8th, 1884. Of course, President Truman, 11 minutes after the state of Israel announces its existence, President Truman is the first world leader to acknowledge that the United States recognizes the state of Israel. Yeah, and he did that, as you know, as a student of history, Steve, he did that at the risk of offending his kind of mandarins in the State Department who said, no, don't do this. At the risk of defending some of his generals at the War Department of War who said, no, don't do this. But, you know, I, he had a view of history, Truman did, and he stuck to his guns. And I think history, um, you know, remembers him well for the courage that he showed on that day. When when you look at this moment in time, how do you process the extremism that we are seeing rising in America? And I, and I want to talk very specifically about danger in a in a moment and and how to perceive it but how do you process this moment is it a dangerous one is it getting more dangerous um or are you uh do you have anxiety about where everything is headed do, do you have a sense that things could fall apart that the center uh could not hold yeah so I think there are several forces that are affecting the moment that we're in right now. Number one, you have the ascendance of populism as a political strategy. And populism is essentially a response to the perception that the elites or the institutions have forgotten the people. And so someone rises up to say that they and only they can solve our problems. Because again, the, the, the elites... The elites have left behind the ordinary people, the masses. So number one, you have populism today on a kind of steroids amplified by the second sort of set of forces, which is sort of the massive exponential rate of change. So we've seen globalism, if you will, right? Completely change uh, economics, trading flows, productivity levels, purchasing power, Global economic shifts have had a wrenching effect on hundreds of millions of people, billions of people around the world, number one. I think number two, 
the increasing effect of technology seems to propound the have and have nots gap, make it even worse. So you have billions of people who feel like, even though if you look at the data, Steve, right, like people are living longer today than ever before, global poverty levels have been alleviated like never before, it's just true. Human productivity has increased like never before, and yet there are, like in our country alone, I would say well over 100 million people who feel like they have been left behind. And so you take those people feeling unsatisfied, combine that with populism, and with just you know the stasis you see in so many of our systems that have been pa paralyzed by the third issue, which is hyper-partisanship. So things are so polarized today. You're on the red team or the blue team. You watch MSNBC or Fox. You are conservative or a liberal. And that partisanship's infected so much. So today you have polling which shows that people are okay with their families, their children marrying out of their race or their religion, but not okay marrying outside of their political party. So populism combined with like the, the transformative change combined with hyperpartisanship creates a very fertile environment where people like extremists have really kind of exploited the sense of collective anxiety. And so we see this in our politics. We see it on the far right where white supremacists and armed militia groups and sovereign citizens and others have moved from the margins into the mainstream, welcomed by people like Donald Trump. And you've seen it on the kind of radical left where a whole different class of actors like hardened anti-Zionists and like, you know, I mean, really committed hardcore socialists and others have stepped into the gap and been led by people like a Bernie Sanders or Rashida Tlaib and others. And so taken together, you have a very volatile mix that gets then, as if this wasn't all bad enough, Steve, it gets amplified and intensified by social media, where suddenly, again, the random extremist who could never get even, you know, couldn't get on a cable access, public access program on cable television before, couldn't get a letter to the editor printed before suddenly can broadcast to billions through YouTube or Instagram Live or post on Facebook. And so you've got a very difficult problem where algorithms are now again amplifying the worst elements, which in this sort of stew, everything's become very combustible. So am I worried? Yes. Do I think things could get worse? Yes. Do I think that it's a foregone conclusion? I don't. I don't think we're already over the edge. I think there's still time, but I worry, Steve, I worry that our leaders seem incapable of leading in so many ways. When you talk about leading, do you mean communicating the dangers of the extremist movement? One of the things that is true and deeply shocking is, and Stephanie Rule pointed this out when she interviewed the president and was promoing the interview with Ari Melber, and they have this conversation on MSNBC, and, and she says quite correctly that the Biden White House wants very much uh, to run against Donald Trump. They, they want to bring Trump forward. Now, when you think about that, wishing for him to move into the finals, where in a nation of 330 million people, as a practical matter, it'll be him or the other guy. I, I can't imagine wishing for him to be in that position. It's astoundingly reckless to me from, from, where, from where I'm sitting. Now, what, what Donald Trump would say um, is that I'm pro-Israel. Um, I moved the embassy. But within his movement, uh, it is clear that the extremist elements that you just talked about have been invited to the mainstream of the party and are now overtly part of the coalition as I see it. Am I looking at that incorrectly at, no. at any level? Yeah, I look. So let's unpack what you said. There's kind of two distinct streams here. Stream number one is I think, and you've got more political experience than I do, but I think a hard-nosed political consultant 
strategists would say, you know what, in terms of President Biden's chances, maybe has a better shot against President Trump than some other candidates. President Trump, I don't know, he's facing four or five, I mean, serious legal threats. There's a high probability he'll be indicted. I mean, just the law of averages says he's likely to be indicted, at least on a couple of these charges, you know, by the time the election happens. He's already demonstrated um, a willingness to, to, you know, not flirt, but to like sleep with the enemy. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So he looks like a better candidate in a one-on-one. But to call that reckless, as you did, I think almost understates it. Like, it's mind-boggling to me why you would take someone who's so dangerous to the republic, who literally welcomed and encouraged the kind of militia types to riot and rampage through the Capitol in his his effort to overturn the election. I mean, I'm not going to run through the litany of charges, but on the line of issues that I care about, extremism and hate, he... He literally, he literally poured gasoline on the fire every single day he was in office. It's just true. And we can see it in lots of different ways. Anti-Semitism went up. Extremist-related murders went up. uh, Hate-fueled violence went up. uh, Recruiting for white supremacist groups went up. None of this was an accident. All was a product of the environment that he continually created and reinforced, okay? So... And you never know what happens. I mean, I, you just don't. I understand that the Democratic Party ran this play in the 22 midterms. In fact, they had some success in a place like Pennsylvania, where Rob Mastriano, a Christian nationalist, also like an incredibly offensive individual, uh, ended up winning the Republican primary because I think the Democrats supported him. And then, of course, he lost to Rob Shapiro in his quest to be governor. I think they want to run that play again. I find, like, look, I run a 501c3 here. We're a nonpartisan group. But again, flirting with fascism seems to me like a like a fool's errand, not something I would recommend. Just because, just because if you lose, you lose huge and it's bad for the country. So there's that. Then you have President Trump and his position on Israel and how he would position himself. And look, there's no question. He facilitated the Abraham Accords, which are extraordinarily important vis-a-vis Israel's position and just creating a more peaceful Middle East. The Abraham Accords did that. He moved the embassy, a policy that Bill Clinton first introduced 20 some odd years ago, 30 years ago, that I support. We supported ADL. I know Israel, is its eternal capital is Jerusalem. I also believe that more needed to be done to call out the role of terror groups to deal with the threat of Iran. President Trump did all that. And at the same time, he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. He created an environment in which Right-wing extremists felt emboldened. He told the kid, the people in Charlottesville that they were fine people on both sides. So he was a paradox, Steve, in that this is a man with Jewish children and Jewish grandchildren who yet welcomed some of the most anti-Jewish elements in the, not even the Republican Party, in America into like the bosom of the Oval Office. It's hard to make sense of that contradiction, but there it was on display every day with President Trump. During his presidency, watching it, observing it, when it began, I don't think he particularly had an ideology um, other than being surprised that he won, but he found his way to one. And And that ideology is a fascistic ideology in its application. And there's something that I deeply agree with Benito Mussolini about, and it's and it's this. He gave a speech, and in his speech, he said, I invented fascism. Mm -hmm. I'm a fascist. I'm going to tell you what a fascist is, Mm -hmm. who is a fascist, who is not. And so you apply Mussolini's standard. You say, wow, this MAGA movement isn't a semi-fascist movement. Donald Trump and these groups have become fascist. Um, Now, when you look at fascism, Uh, There are two elements to it Mm -hmm. uh, that are as predictable as the sun rising in the east in the morning. One is the violence and two is the anti-Semitism. Right. They are they are part and parcel of any right wing fascistic movement. So in this country where we've just had our 199th mass shooting in the last 128 days. Wow. Mass shooter who killed eight in Texas, 
uh, the most recent as of this podcast, had a patch on his uh, right. tactical gear. And that patch uh, was familiar uh, because it was on the vests of the Proud Boy and the Oath Keeper leader, some of them. And it says RWDS. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the shooter at the uh, really tragic incident in Allen, Texas, which took place on May the 7th, uh, had a patch that we've been able to identify that said RWDS, which stands for Right Wing Death Squad, which is a fray. It's not a real group per se, but a kind of association uh, popular with right wing extremists. Now, interestingly, Steve, uh, we know that this individual, so immediately, at, I mean, that he was killed on site and uh, the law enforcement immediately pulled down his social media feeds. My analysts at ADL have gotten our hands on much of his kind of digital, his digital uh, footprints. So we're analyzing those breadcrumbs right now as we do this podcast. That being said, What's interesting is he was a Hispanic male, yet clearly parroting or somewhat sort of fascinated by right-wing white supremacist extremist content. So it points out some of the, again, contradictions of this moment, because one of the features of Trumpism is you have people who are part of this MAGA movement who are from minority groups who stand to lose if the MAGA movement gains traction. And some of its most prominent proponents, like Nick Fuentes, who, uh, you know, Donald Trump's dinner dinner date, or uh, Enrico Tario, who was just found guilty last week, could be sentenced as much as 20 years. He's the leader of the Proud Boys and was part of the Quarter of People. Or he egged on the people to take the Capitol on January the 6th. He wasn't in Washington. He'd been arrested a few days earlier for burning a Black Lives Matter flag. But people like Tario and Fuentes and this guy, Latinos, like you'd say, well, why are they a part of this movement? Because this kind of authoritarianism, this kind of white nationalism defies some of the conventional ways that we think about it. Just because you're Hispanic doesn't mean you can't propose propound xenophobic racism that couldn't affect Hispanic people. I see Jewish people, Jewish people, were part of the MAGA movement that I think has deep anti-Semitism to it. And I see other Jewish people who are anti-Zionist, which again is a deeply anti-Semitic thing. So sometimes these forms of hate don't fit, snap neatly into the boxes that we think about them in. It's just more complicated. When when you think about when you think about the the tenuousness of of America's political system right now. Uh-huh. The level of anger that there seems to be, the level of boiling extremism, the intimations of violence, uh, members that routinely cross into anti-Semitic rhetoric, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, whether it's Paul Gosar, how do you approach uh, a a political party at its leadership level, um, talking to them about their craziest members? Very hard. Uh, and it's a very interesting question, Steve, because it didn't used to be this way. So say 10 years ago, every party, uh, let me step back, extremism, is not a partisan phenomenon. Neither side of the political spectrum is exempt from intolerance. You see it manifest over time, lots of ways. You get haters on both sides. You might not know it if you only watch certain cable news networks, but it happens on all sides. And yet, what's happened recently is again with this hyper-partisanship, people are now unwilling to acknowledge the, uh, those who offend when they're within their own ranks. And so take someone like Paul Gosar, who is a member of the House delegation from Arizona, who is awful, who openly associates with white supremacists, who openly associates with anti-Semites. Honestly, like you can't make it up. And yet for some reason, whereas in an earlier time, 
the Republican Party and its leadership in the House shut out the haters. Like, uh, what was his name from, um, oh, escapes me for a moment. David long, Duke. No, that's a good example. So when David Duke ran for Senate in Louisiana, George H.W. Bush immediately said, he's a racist, we want nothing to do with him and shut him out from any support from the GOP, literally. And when he won the primary. And then I'm thinking about the guy in Iowa, the longstanding House member, his name just escapes me, unfortunately. But Kevin McCarthy, when he was the minority leader, uh, stripped him of his committee assignments about four years ago. Steve King. Steve King. Steve King of blessed memory. You know, like literally Kevin McCarthy kneecapped him. Now today he's got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's an open Christian nationalist. And to say that she says offensive things is a massive understatement. Paul Gosar, who openly associates with the anti-Semites and Nazis, sitting by his side. It, it boggles the mind. Now, again, you see it in the Democratic side, too, where, again, I mentioned Rashida Tlaib. She is a hardcore, unrepentant anti-Zionist who uses every opportunity she can to slander the state of Israel, despite the fact that we know that that kind of slander leads to anti-Semitism here in the United States. Doesn't matter. She's got an intersectional worldview that ends where Israel begins. And so she she literally propounds that every problem in the world is a function of, of, of the Jewish, the only Jewish state on the planet. So I share this both because there's, at an earlier time, Rashida Tlaib and Paul Gosar would not be embraced by their leadership, but that seems to happen now. And it makes it much harder for a group like mine when we go to a, a, a leader, Jeffries, or Speaker McCarthy, to get the kind of basic results we would expect where people who espouse radical views, instead of being pushed to the sidelines, are welcomed into the center, into the forefront of the politics. It's, it's a crazy sign of these crazy times. I want to talk about the sense of danger again, um, a name that you will be familiar with, but few who are watching this will be is Sir Anthony Winton. Uh, the Angel of Prague. And yeah. for everybody watching, Anthony Winton was a British businessman. And what he did is help get hundreds of Czech Jewish children out of the country. He disappeared into the mist after the war. And he was finally discovered, I believe, when he was in his late 80s. He lived to 106 years old. His achievements uh, were recognized ultimately. But when you think about Anthony Winton, and, and by the way, uh, Anthony Hopkins is going to be playing him in a movie. They're making oh, a wow. I did not movie know. That's cool. about this. But you think about a Jewish mother yeah. in Prague in 1938. And then you try to appreciate no cell phone, no telephone, maybe a letter, maybe not. But you are giving your child to a stranger, your sense of danger is so acute, so heightened that you're willing to do that. But in that moment, that was an extreme minority position among Jewish mothers who no doubt when they talked about the danger with their friends, when they told them what they did, uh, likely just like moms today, there would have been a judgment and the judgment would have been some version of you're crazy uh, to have done that. When you think about this moment where anti-Semitism is gaining steam, not retreating, increasing, how should Jews in America think about danger? Is it dangerous to be Jewish in America in 2023 in a way that it was not in 1983 or 93 or 03? Or are you worried about a trend line that takes us someplace that can still be interdicted? How, how do you process the danger, if there is any at all? It's a super good question. So look, I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor from Germany who did flee. He escaped the ghetto and fled Germany in 1938. 
lost almost his whole family to, to Auschwitz and the death camps. He was able to get out. I'm also the husband of a Jewish refugee from Iran. Uh, my wife and her family traced their lineage back. Never could have guessed that that country, which had always been hospitable to Jews, would change. And then after Khomeini came to power, it did. And she lived through the Islamic Revolution. She lived through the Iran-Iraq War. And then things got so bad, bad for the Jews, bad for the whole country, that when she was 14, her mother put her on a plane alone with a fake passport that said she was a Muslim. Because it says your it says your religion on the passport, Steve, said she was a Jew, and they weren't letting Jews leave. They prohibited Jews from leaving the country. So she she got a fake passport, said she wasn't Jewish, and she got on a plane and she flew to France alone because of the fear that she lived with, which wasn't the depth, the genocidal fear that my grandfather may have was living with in the 30s, but it was a real fear that things were going south fast. Okay. So I think about my situation, Jews' situation in America today. Look, I am someone who I am a proud patriot. I love this country. This country has been a gift to me and to so many people who are the refugees themselves or the children or the spouses or the grandchildren and so on and so forth. This country, I, I'm long on America. I'm an, I, 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 you could describe me as someone who believes in American exceptionalism. But, and I will say, it has been so great to this country, to the Jews. I literally had breakfast with a woman today who talked about growing up in Florida and remembering the signs that said no coloreds, no, no coloreds, no dogs, no Jews. You had signs like that in businesses all over Miami, like in the 40s and the 50s. It's just how it was, um, let alone earlier. I mean, and to, there was a time when Jews couldn't attend universities in this country or did so in tiny numbers. You know, here in New York City, I'm in Manhattan, the biggest hospital is Cedar sinai That was built by Jews in the 1850s because they couldn't get treatment at New York Presbyterian because they were Jewish and they wouldn't treat Jewish patients. They would die on the floor in front of the hospital because they wouldn't be treated. So the Jews built Cedar sinai which today is a big flourishing medical institution, one of the best in the world. So Jews couldn't get medical treatment. They couldn't work in professions, couldn't buy homes in many neighborhoods. Look, we have it so much better today in this country, Steve. Like I can, my kids can attend any university they want. I can get medical treatment anywhere that I want. I can buy a home anywhere that I want. I won't be prohibited from getting a job because of my last name. On and on, Jews have overcome the barriers that were in front of them 100 years ago, 70 years ago in this country. And yet, <laughs> like the data tells us a somewhat sobering story. ADL has been tracking anti-Semitic incidents longer than the FBI has been tracking hate crimes. We've been doing it for almost 45 years. The last five years, we've hit three record highs on anti-Semitic incidents. In 2019, in 21, and in 22. So three times in the past four years. In 2022, the number, which was a record high, was 36% higher than the prior year, the previous record. The number included a 51% spike in vandalism, a 29% increase in assaults, and a 26% increase in acts of harassment. We had anti-Jewish acts in all 50 states. We had a 41% increase on college campuses, almost a 50% surge in K-12 schools. So to answer your question, um, is it more dangerous for Jews today? Again, relative to the 30s in Europe, this is paradise. Relative to the 30s in America, it's way better. And yet you can't help but read the tea leaves and not get concerned. I feel like Jewish people here at a slightly different frequency, Steve, than the rest of the population, meaning we can often, maybe it's like epigenetic trauma, we can often recognize when things are starting to change before the data bears it out. And I talk to Jewish people all over the country. I travel all the time. I'm on the road constantly. It took us so long to get this scheduled because I'm constantly on the road. And what I hear from Jewish people, Steve, I hear it in California, in Illinois, in Michigan, in Virginia, in New York, in Florida. The question that I now get asked, that I never used to get asked before, Steve, is should I be considering leaving this country? Should I be looking elsewhere? 
Like, what do you think about, you know, making Aliyah to Israel? Do you know about the Golden Passport Program in Portugal? Have you thought about or talked to people who move money into Canada? These are the kind of questions I now get asked. I never used to get asked this before. So is there reason to be concerned? Yes, there is. Is there a foregone conclusion that this is going to go south? No, there isn't. But what I believe, Steve, is that if we don't you know, put both hands on the wheel, this car could go off the road. And by this car, I mean not just for Jews, but democracy. Anti-Semitism is a canary in the coal mine of democracy. When it flares, it is a it is a sign of sickness in a society. It starts with the Jews, Steve, but it never ends with the Jews. So this is an issue that isn't a Jewish problem. It's an American problem. As go the Jews, so goes America. The man who interrogated Adolf Eichmann was an Israeli police captain named Avner Less, who lost his family in the Holocaust. He obscured that fact so he could get the interrogation job, lied to his superiors about it, uh, interrogated uh, Eichmann for hundreds of hours. And in 1981, Avner Lass is asked if he had any takeaways from the experience. And his response was, it changed my perspective on everything hmm. about democracy. He said, there are Adolf Eichmanns everywhere. They're all around us. In a democracy, they're harmless. They're latent. In a dictatorship of the left or the right, they turn deadly in an instant. And I thought that that was as deep and as profound an observation yeah. that that I've ever heard from somebody who, who no doubt had had plenty of time over the 20 years between him being in the interrogation room with Eichmann and his answer to that question to, to ponder that experience. I, you know, it's funny. I hadn't heard that quote before, but it sounds right on the money to me. Like, we've always had extremists in society, Steve. Like, they're not new. They've always been bigots. Look, like, I think white supremacy is real. And the structural racism that's encoded into so many segments of society is real. And if you don't think it's real, I don't think you looked at the data. I mean, just the level, the, 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 the inequitable levels on things like funding for schools or, again, sentencing rates or, you know, Health, maternal health outcomes. I mean, these things aren't, um, I don't want to say that it's all intentional, that someone's pulling the strings, but they are the result of an accumulated set of injustices. They demand attention. Um, so bigotry is not new, and it didn't start with the Jews. And yet, what's different today is suddenly you have people who can put their bigotry on full display and feel empowered to do so because the cultural kind of informants are encouraging that bigotry. And they are imbuing that kind of intolerance with not just access they didn't have before, right? But with the kind of explicit support that allows them to pursue these policies. Whether it's like tearing children from their parents at the border in a way that's deep, was intended to be dehumanizing, to deter you know, migrants and refugees with a policy of dehumanization. Or again, it's elected officials espousing Christian nationalism, which need I say it so, but is intrinsically exclusionary to the, a large number of Americans who might not identify as Christians. And, you know, this is not much as, you know, Israel is a Jewish state. Saudi Arabia is a Muslim state. Uh, there are other countries that have a longstanding identity based on a particular faith or ethnicity. America's gift to the world was being a home to refugees of all faiths, of all ethnicities. I mean, it was this kind of, whether you want to use the melting pot analogy or the buffet analogy, you hear lots of them. The potluck dinner, my friend Ibu Patel likes that. But the bottom line is that this was a place for refugees. So when you have elected officials espouse an ideology of exclusion, that should be worrying to all of us. And so, yeah, maybe there are latent Eichmanns around, 
but once they were marginalized, now to see them mainstreamed, to see them moving into positions of power is, I mean, it's not troubling, it's terrifying. And I think we've all got to think collectively beyond our party, right? Beyond our political frame, how do we do something about this? When, when you, I've talked on this platform about a man named Artur de Gobineau, who wrote an essay in 1855 called The Inequality of the Races. And he is the first person uh, to use the word Aryan and place it atop a racial hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And Gobineauism uh, was latched onto by, by an obscure German worker party in the 1920s, the National Socialist Workers Party, and the rest is the rest is history. Um, now, one of the things I've said to my kids is that you've missed out on getting to know the World War II generation guys. Right. Our right. grandparents, they were they were they were an interesting bunch, right? Who, as a as a general proposition, grew up in the uh, grew up in the depression. If they were still around, and they were watching Fox News on any given night, when Tucker Carlson starts with replacement theory, which was foundational to Nazi ideology. The idea that we, the master race, are going to be replaced by the subhuman races, and therefore, right, the Germans, we need Lebensraum, we need room to grow, to spread, right, to the east, and this vision of racial purity. It is amazing that we're within a life, a single human lifespan of, of humanity's greatest tragedy, and, and it seems to have been erased at some level from general consciousness about the ideological roots, right, of what it was that led to the killing of 60 million people. So when you're sitting in the 2020s watching what is white supremacy 101, which is what replacement theory is, play out on the number one rated cable news program. And then, by the way, after all the lying and everything else is exposed, 10 days later, that network is sitting at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, front and center network president, and everyone is joking about it. Yeah. I find it so deeply frightening. Um that there seems to be a lack of both the recognition and then the appropriate outrage over the what it is that he's actually doing because it's crystal clear. Yeah, I mean, ADL generally and, and me specifically have been on the record and in a public back and forth with Tucker Carlson for years because no, no figure in modern media did more to mainstream kind of extremism than Tucker Carlson. It wasn't a bug on his program, it was a feature. Every single night, he would go out, he would talk about replacement theory and try to kind of water it down. I would describe it as hate laundering. So he would launder the kind of content we would see on extremist websites by introducing it and trying to say, oh, it's the Democrats, oh, it's the DNC, but this was toxic stuff. He knew exactly what he was doing night after night after night after night. He would often talk about bankers. And by the way, whenever he talked about bankers, he would somehow always mention the Jewish bankers, whether it was Larry Fink or Paul Singer or Dan Loeb or uh, of course, George Soros. They loomed large in his fever dreams about the financiers who were manipulating America, who were funding again, replacement theory, were part of a big, a widespread plot. I mean, this was stuff right out of the protocols of the elders of Zion that he simply dressed up to pretend as if it was like a political conversation. It wasn't, it never was. By the way, I had an exchange of letters a few years ago with um, Lachlan Murdoch about this, where I called for him to be fired and Lachlan wrote back and said, you know, I have a lot of respect for the ADL, but I think Tucker was just doing satire or something like that. And I wrote back and I and he said that his dad, Rupert, had won an award from ADL before my tenure as CEO. And it was one of his most, I don't know, 
memorable moments. And I wrote back and said, I would never give your father an award. And there was nothing comedic about what Tucker was doing. It was dangerous. And by the way, you don't have to even believe me that it was dangerous. Just again, I'll go back to the data of mass shootings. And uh, there's a, I mean, you know, Steve, it's like there's, there's a through line from Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us, to Pittsburgh, to El Paso, to Buffalo. I mean, all these events, by the way, to Christchurch, involve shooters invoking great replacement theory, involved individuals claiming a conspiracy with Jews at the center and whether they also implicated migrants or Muslims or Mexicans or black people. And so I think none of the, all those incidents, they look like, you know, I don't know, just like a scatter plot until you pull back the lens and you realize they're data points on a trend line. And it's a trend line of terror, of domestic terror. And it concludes in my mind with January the 6th. And so whether it's Tucker Carlson or any of these other media personalities, whether they're non-Jewish or Jewish, regardless of what channel they're on or what party they affiliate with, this is dangerous stuff as combustible as any other kind of explosive. And so I think we have no choice but to push our elected officials, our policymakers, our media moguls to do better because society hangs in the balance if they don't. There was a documentary that came out last year by Frontline and the Associated Press. The Associated Press reporter was Michelle Smith, and it really focuses on General Flynn. And I, I have never seen a documentary. As the documentary ended, my response was, and I was sitting by myself watching it, I said, holy shit, out loud. Okay. She, she ends the documentary uh, walking the perimeter um, and she's the, this nice, um, normal-ish acting person, right? And she's out in this field walking this perimeter, and you hear the automatic weapons fire from inside the Flynn compound. And she makes the case very clearly that they are preparing for civil war. And, and they are. And there, there is this aspect about Trump that going back to 2016, there was a very famous quote by a conservative reporter named Selena Zito, who talked about, if I get this right, the people took Trump uh, seriously, but not literally. Uh, the elites took him literally, you know, but not seriously. My policy when it comes to any fascistic white supremacist organization, I take everybody literally and seriously. If they say it, right, I will give them the benefit of the doubt that Nick Fuentes, Tucker Carlson, whomever means it 100, 100%. Why do you think we live in this era when you hear the extremism? It's stated clearly, yet over and over and over again, there seems to be an impulse towards dismissal. I think in some ways, Steve, it's because people can't confront the reality because it's almost too scary. It's almost too frightening. And where do you go from here? When you realize that these issues are not just, again, the fodder for talk news shows, Steve, they are actually existential issues for our democracy. So I think when you see how consequential they are, it almost becomes overwhelming. Because if we get this wrong, what's the, what's the uh, famous uh, axiomatic uh, phrase by Benjamin Franklin? Someone said about Chicago Congress, how to go? And he said, well, we've got a republic if you can keep it. Like we have these moments where it appears that the republic is actually literally on the line. And I think it is. I don't think I'm exaggerating. No, I think I, you're right. So I, I think our brains almost can't process the severity of the situation, which is why we're in a kind of denial or dismissal. It's a bit like climate change. We don't want to deal with the issue because it, it is, seems so, it's so awful if it comes to pass. But I think we've got to. This is the, our work at ADL. We've got to confront these issues. 
as horrifying as they may be, because if we don't stop this hate, like it'll engulf all of us. I wanted to just ask you this last question, which is that the United States isn't the only place in the world where we see democratic regression. We have this strongman archetype of leader, and I think it's fair to put BB Netanyahu into that category. Uh, my perspective is he's become increasingly illiberal over over the over the last fifteen years, but my. You look at the protests in Israel, um, the manifest importance, of course, for an independent judiciary, uh, for the stability and health of any democracy. How how important is it, right, that that Israel be not just a Jewish state, which it which it will be and will endure as, but a but a Jewish democracy. And, and can Israel be a moral state absent it being a democratic state? And do you think when people say who are friends of Israel view the state of Israel as an urgent moral necessity, its maintenance, its growth, its stability, and look at the long-term demographic issues in the, in the country, the lack of settlement with the Palestinian issues. How do you think about this? And what do you say uh, to American Jews uh, who are worried when they look at Israel and see what's happening there, particularly with regards to the health of its democracy? So it's a great question. And I think it's, it's not a simple question and there isn't a simple answer. So let me try to put it in a few frames. So number one, is it, is Judaism or being a Jewish state incompatible with being a democracy? The answer to that is a, is a resounding no. So for 75 years, Israel has been really the only true democracy in the region. Again, whether you're born, if you're born inside Israel, whether you are a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, whether you're a Palestinian or uh, ethnically Jewish, whether you're born in Russia or Ethiopia, Irrespective of your racial or ethnic religious background, you're born in Israel, you're a citizen. You can vote. You can do national service or serve in the army or choose not to because you're a pacifist or don't believe. You can do all of those things. And Israel has had the most raucous democracy, one of the most raucous democracies in the world, one of the freest presses in the world. I mean, the data is extraordinary and it's real. And you can just see it in how often they have elections. I mean, it is a very vibrant democracy. And having a Jewish character isn't much different than Spain having a Catholic character, isn't much different than so many Muslim countries in this world having an Islamic character. Like that doesn't mean you can't be a democracy. Just because it is a, a just because it has provided refuge for indigent Jews, for Jews escaping tyranny in Iran, or in Europe, or in so many places, doesn't mean that it also can't be a refuge for others as it's done with African migrants. Doesn't mean that it can't be a haven for other religious minorities as it's done for Baha'i people. Doesn't mean that it can't you know, be a welcoming place as it has been for 75 years. So that's number one. Number two, I believe that Israel's long-term survival and success predicates on realizing uh, an agreement with the Palestinian people. I think that we've seen multi-ethnic societies, whether in Lebanon or in Syria or Libya or Iraq, tend not to work out so well in the modern Middle East. Uh, none of them have. And so I think Israel would do would be wise to create a two-state solution that provides safety and security for Israelis and dignity and equality for Palestinians. Will that be easy to do? No. If it if it were easy to do, they would have done it already. Are the Israelis alone in needing that outcome? No. Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian people, I wouldn't rob them of their agency. I wouldn't participate in what George Bush called, or maybe it was Michael Gerson, the soft bigotry of low expectations. The Palestinians have agency. Had Yasser Arafat agreed to multiple offers put out over the years, 
maybe they would already have the detente that they need. Irrespective of the fact that Mahmoud Abbas will meet with the Israelis, I still think the Israelis need to push, to push, to push for a two-state solution. I think ultimately that is the best strategy for success for both polities. So that's number two. But then number three, in terms of the state of Israeli democracy today, well, look, I'll point out that while we're recording this podcast over the weekend, the Israelis had for the 18th week in a row, large-scale, nonviolent, peaceful demonstrations in big cities across the country over the weekend. So I want you to think about this for a moment, Steve. They've had hundreds of thousands of people show up in the streets every night. At one point, they had 650 some odd thousand people. Well, in a country of 9 million plus, if you take out the, the Arab population who are not participating in these protests, by the way, that's a problem. We can talk about that if you want. And then another, whatever, 1.2, 1.3 million Orthodox Jews who want to see judicial reform go through. So we're talking about whatever, that's like three and a half some odd million people. The number of people demonstrating, Steve, are upwards of 10% of the non-Arab, non-Haredi population. It's an astounding, it's an astounding number. And, and uh, think about it, when we had the Black Lives Matter protests, the violence that ensued, we had a couple hundred thousand people on the street. We had a couple, what a one, two, three percentage points of our population. They've had 10% out week after week after week after week. No water cannons, no rubber bullets, no SWAT, like no, I mean, literally it's been peaceful. So that tell, and by the way, the government responded and pulled back on the judicial reform. So the health of the democracy looks good, but again, democracy is not an outcome. Democracy is not a place that you visit. Democracy is an ongoing process that you commit to, right? And so 75 years in, if the Israelis want the next 75 years to be as vibrant, as robust, as peaceful, they need to commit and recommit and recommit every day, every week, every month, every year. So that is not clear. Some of the proposals on the table worry me as a supporter of Israel, and yet I'm heartened to see what's happening every day and hope that they'll keep up the pressure and push to make sure the country continues to be as representative, as pluralistic, and as participatory as it's been in its first 75 years. Well, Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. It's been a great conversation. Good luck thank to you in the end of the Defamation League and the important work that you do for the United States. Thank and you for the super interesting, super smart questions. I've appreciated it. Wish you best of luck with the podcast and hope we can do it again soon. Thank you, Jonathan.